G'day, it's Phil here. Last week, I had a great conversation and just started to get to know John Yeo, an extraordinary person who thinks differently and thinks remarkably and helps people to do the same thing, as well as running TEDx Melbourne and doing all sorts of work in whatever spare time he has with youth and youth at risk and diversity and inclusion programs that have global impact. And there he was just explaining to us how he has a particularly ordinary childhood. Yet when we start to peel beneath the surface, we start to talk about belonging and the civic character of belonging, we can see that the foundations laid for an incredible life. I am really excited to take this conversation further. I can't wait. Let's go. Before you start your conversation with today's Game Changers special series guest, Phil, can you share with our audience a little insight into our special series sponsor? Sure thing, Adriano. EDAPT provides educators with an easier, more meaningful way to check in with each student and know them on a deeper level. Find out more at edapt.education forward slash game changers. That's edapt.education forward slash game changers. Let's go. Hello, John. How are you doing this week? You good? Hello. Good to be back. Excellent. John, where we left this last time was uh, it, you're in high school and you've found computers and you, I guess, found some sort of niche and, and you've begun on this journey. You've realised that the who am I bit, the belonging bit is perhaps grounded in, in helping people. I, I wonder if we might be able to take your story forward into where you go after school and, and what that looks like and then maybe frame this part of the conversation around that notion of of helping people to reach their potential. It's uh, an interesting journey into the, the character of a servant, I guess. Yeah. Look, I, I might sort of add to that, that it was the seed. I didn't realise it for, at this point, another 20 years, that that was my purpose. Great. So let's talk about that, the, the, the journey to get to those 20 years. Yeah. So I think, like most people, everyone desires certainty. You want certainty when when you're driving down the left-hand side of that white line, you will hope that everyone else respects it. They'll drive down their left side sign. When everyone sees that stop sign, you'll hope everyone else respects that stop sign. Like certainty is absolutely required as a way for people, for civic society to move forward. If we become dogmatic about that, that's when it becomes impractical. And so one of the things that uh, my father had a curious mind, but he also had an in, uh, sort of this inquisitive nature, he'd always go, why is that? Okay, so and, and that caused him to be a systems level thinker. And he did that by just watching nature. And anyone who sits in nature knows that the cycles of nature are, are always beautifully in harmony. It's only when something pokes and prods it that it all starts to go sideways. So I kind of uh, was brought up with the whole system wide thinking. So I was brought up with a lot of uh, sustainability awareness. My, my father was sort of quite aware in, in those 70s, he came here in the 50s. Uh, you know, the prevalence of plastic bags where in Malaysia, where he grew up, uh, they used banana leaf to wrap things. So you, know, you could throw it on the ground and break down, wouldn't be a problem. But he used some plastic bags in the ocean back then as a swimmer and go, what is with all these plastic bags? So he, he had a bit of a, a, an environmental bent to him, which I've uh, sort of inherited. But he also had a kind of like, well, knowing that's the case, what's going to cause that to not happen? And that's where system thinking came in. And that's where the analyst in me really kind of lit up. And so it's like, well, what causes that to happen? And this kind of related to TEDx Melbourne and the blessing there. I had access to all the TED videos and I could tell when someone would pause, rewind or abandon a video. So the analyst in me goes, well, what were they doing before that? What were they saying or doing before that? So I would rewind a bit, watch it again. And I worked out some, with statistical significance, what causes someone to pay attention to your talk? 
which then began the... And, and what's the answer for that? Yeah, there's three core facts. So the first one is content. A lot of people say content is king. I totally disagree with that uh, in its state, in that state, because if that was the case, everything in your inbox would be equally important, equally actionable, and actually equally relevant to you right now. And clearly that's not the case. So content is not king, but saying the right thing, the right time, the right person, the right way is, I won't go into that now. So first one is content. Second one is context, which is what's the nature of where are we at? So the awareness of sustainability back in the 50s was not where it is today. So the priorities are therefore different. So context determines someone's priority, even time of day. If I'm trying to get your attention at nine o'clock in the morning, that's much easier than, than 4.55 as you're running out the office door. So, you know, people's context shape their ability to prioritise what you're saying. And then the third one is intent, which is do they believe that they have your best interest in the conversation? No one wants to be sold to or lectured unless you're in a classroom or you're in a sales meeting. But the last thing you want at the family barbecue is just someone to pitch anyway at you. So people need to understand your intention. And I don't think a lot of thought is put into the intention. And so when we don't understand someone's intention, we project on them. Oh, they're being bullying. They're, they're trying to make me do something I don't want. And those things cause natural resistance. So if we can understand the intention of the communicator, then we can potentially give them arguably a social license to be a little bit more flexible around that. Let's walk through each of those in turn and let's say what what helps unpack each of those three reasons. So what's the key that we need to help people to understand? So coming back to content again, so we'll start at the beginning. Content is a function of, of depth and complexity. And depth of complexity really flies in three different layers, uh, the concepts, the principles, and the details. And some people love details, like technicians and analysts. Some people can't stand it, like, you know, senior people in a senior role. They don't want the detail. They just want the high level. Just tell me how that's going to impact me. So you've got to understand, you know, that the level of detail is determined by where that person's context is. If you're in a hurry, you only want the high level details, even if you're a technical person. So concept, what are the big picture things that we can both agree so we can all understand that we're going the same direction? Because if we're not going the same direction, we have a bigger problem. The principles underneath that describe the core levers that make that happen. So for instance, flying. If you want to learn how to fly, you need to understand thrust, you need to understand drag, you need to understand lift, and you need to understand gravity, they are principles. If you don't understand those principles, you can't create a flying object like a plane. And if any one of those is missing, that plane won't fly. And so if you can explain something in principle, that gives you permission to go into the detail. And that might be, when it comes back to a plane, it might come to, I don't know, engine management systems or, 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 or flying yokes or whatever, whatever detail you need to go to. But sure. So do we need to be prepared, therefore, to mix up the order in which that we cover those with people, because you know, if you know, if, if my mum were here right now, and, and if you are, if you're listening, mum, g'day, um, she would sit there and say, "Give me the detail first. She's a real detail person. Um, drives me absolutely mad. Yeah. Um, and then from the detail, she'll then construct the principles, and then she'll get to the concepts. But you know, if I had another one of my friends, is 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 the exact opposite. I've got to do the conceptual stuff, then the principles, 
and then they'll probably fill in the detail around that. Do, do we need that flexibility? Yes, and that's why it's not content is king because if you just do content, you're always worried about what you're going to say. And marketers always talk about features and benefits, and features and benefits are not helpful if your house is on fire, you know, because you want, you know, it's something else is distracting you. So if I was to talk to your mum, I would need to understand the context she's in and the intention she has for the conversation and the intention I have for the conversation and adapt accordingly. And in your case, in, in that instance, it's clear the detail comes first. But you need to max the content, context and intent in a dynamic framework. And, you know, interestingly enough, John, that's, it's a little bit like the character pitch that we've, I've, I've, I'm trying to frame our whole conversation around about that civic character of belonging, the performance character of reaching your potential and exploring possibility and, the, and the, the moral character of doing good and right. They all coexist um, and you can pull on different levers at, at different times. But, you know, it's, it's not as though there's a Voldemort out there who can suck out all the civic character and deposit it at one place and you just operate on belonging because if, if you're not doing good and right, it's very hard to feel as though you genuinely belong and, and vice versa. We do know in the development of character, and this, again, this is, this is our research that we've done, we do know that if you feel as though you belong, you're more likely to achieve your potential. And if you feel as though you belong and are achieving your potential, you're more likely to do good and right in the world. But that's not necessarily the sequence with which you deal with it, with people you know, along. How did you develop these sorts of understandings? There's obviously a journey. Yeah. Um, you, you, where does where does where does it go? You, you, you're at, you, I'm guessing you're at university at some point, and then you're working in different industries. Give yeah. us a little bit of that story that that helps us to understand how you reach the point where you can pull apart yeah. these sorts of things, and in the the context of TED. So I guess mm-hmm. take us yeah. from take us from school to TED. Okay. All right, so I will come back to a principle because that's how my brain works. But it, 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 to come to your point, to, to answer your question, how you get there is you have to have lots of information, which Ted has lots of, and you need a crucible by which it forces it into necessity. And so with Ted, it was kind of like, I didn't realise all this was helpful. I was tracking that because I, I was interested. I was interested because... As, a, as, as, an, as an introvert, not very good communicator, I needed to discover this. So I began gathering data. Uh, Ted was kind of a little bit of an accent, but let's go, let's answer your question. Where did that begin? Even before Ted, as I was get, getting to the workforce, I was trying to convince someone that Y2K, the millennium bug was a thing. I remember and, that. I remember that. I mean, it was certainly a big thing for a wee moment, wasn't it? Yes, it was. I did 120 hour weeks for five years to make sure that no, you know, nothing happened. But to convince a CEO more than five years in advance that a task force needs to be set up to do something that won't happen probably even under their tenure then becomes a problem unless you're a good communicator. And the only opportunity I got to do that was when the CEO walked past the office every morning where I had to say something very quickly. I had to say it in a compelling way and I had to say in, in a language level that he could understand. And so that was where the content context intent model began. And so I was going, well, what's caused me to fail as a communicator and what's caused me to be successful as a communicator? And I thought about it and discovered those three things. So that's kind of where that came from. So all of, by the way, all the models I have are based on physics 
or, or, or biological systems because if nature can't simplify them, if I haven't simplified it to the point where it, it, it it's emulated in nature, then I haven't thought about it enough. Yeah, that's in, that's interesting. Uh, look, funnily enough, most of the, I'm, I'm obsessed by story. I love story um, in all its different forms, and yet most of my understanding about how you pull apart a story is not modernist or even postmodernist. I mean, I'm really interested in things like mm-hmm. ubiquity, ubiquity theory and chaos theory and catastrophe and, and things like right. that, that, that just give us a totally, so that the, the world of physics is, is deeply influential and hard science is deeply influential. Chemistry as well too is really interesting for me because chemistry teaches you about reciprocity, doesn't it? And balance and, and no story can work. No story grips us unless there is a degree of give and take, unless there's reciprocity. Um, you know, if you and if you if you watch or you listen to a story and somebody is is getting all the good stuff, you just know that at some point there has to be a counterbalance, doesn't it? Don't you? Otherwise, it's boring. Science teaches us about history, but you can't do that unless you get out of the details of history and go to the principles and yeah. the concepts. So I'm, I'm yeah. trying to learn stuff from you. Um, as we're going, so you're there. You, you've you've built models that are based on biological sciences or hard sciences around interactions. You're working to help people think through a problem for which there's no, for which the solutions provide no immediate gratification, and even when they did happen, as they did, it was all spectacularly um, uninteresting when it happened because you guys have done your job, haven't you? You, you yeah. solved the problem. Therefore, nothing perceivable um, happened apart from the world didn't end. We had yeah. nice fireworks. Yeah, it's a pretty great outcome. It's almost awesome. the best outcome. Oh, it, is, it is the best outcome. It's, you know, I want to talk to you about the building of a model and the breaking down of things. Again, when we've done our research around the world, uh, around leaders of character and the character of leaders in educational contexts, they can all tell us about the work that needs to be done. They can tell us very clearly about things that really worry them um, and make their lives difficult. They've all got a very clear understanding of service and its importance, although when you pull it apart, you'll discover that for some of them, that there can be sometimes a gap between, um, shall we say, altruistic service and self-serving service, but you know that's, that's all right. That's different people in different situations almost none of them build a model and break it down into its constituent parts. They just kind of do it. And so when we start talking with people about how to build a model for their own purpose and their practice and so on, so that you would be deliberate and intentional about it and then use that to help you reflect on your own practice, people don't like doing that. They prefer organic. Now, Listeners of this program will know I hate the word organic use in this context. Organic steak, yes. Organic milk, yes. Organic veggies, definitely. Organic human beings and their interchanges, no, because it doesn't actually happen. I think what people are talking about is effortlessness. And effortlessness and high execution usually comes about as a result of intentionality until it becomes just so well-skilled that you go from conscious competence to unconscious competence, I guess. Tell us about your experience then about gaining expertise. You've built this model and presumably at some point you're getting better and better and better at this model. And then you've got to teach this model to other people. Take us through that journey. 
Well, it didn't begin as a model. It began as little observations. So, and because I didn't even have the data initially, it was kind of like, oh, this is what I noticed. This is what I noticed. And so as I was helping people develop their talks, I said, well, this is what I've seen works. And, and you know, I'd get various people arguing for or against whether they like the idea or not. And I thought, I can't just have it as a, who's going to, you know, uh, who's going to argue the best? Because the analyst in me didn't like that. Also, you know, I, I knew that if they didn't follow certain basic principles, that they wouldn't get the success that they were thinking they were going to get. And that's when I sort of went, well, I can go back to the data. I started to dig out the data and I go, look, you can not take this advice, but there is an X percent chance what you're suggesting won't work based on this data. So I'm not going to tell you to not do it, but I can also tell you that if you do it that way, you won't get the outcome you're expecting. And the beauty was that not only I could tell the inputs, what they did, what they said, how they prepared, but I could also tell the outputs. We had data from the attendees, which talks they liked, how much impact it had, um, what they thought of them or their event. And I could literally find strong correlations between my data and their success and recognition on the stage. One of those categories was the probability of getting a standing ovation. And I could disproportionately increase their chances. Now, not that that's a bill and end all of speaking, but it's a good object, objective one because you can't make someone do a standing ovation. No, no, you certainly can't. Um, what an interesting thought as to whether that's something in life you would aim for or not. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah, yeah. I'm just. I'll I'll, I'll. I'll. reflect on that one for a moment. It's. It's yeah, an over. It's an. It's an overwhelming experience when it happens. I know mm. that much. And I think it would be dangerous to get too used to that experience because you'd probably end up taking it for granted, wouldn't you? Well, I wonder. Yeah. If, I wonder if people in North America have that problem because people in North America will get on their feet for any reason in the middle of a speech, won't they? They'll just, you know. Whereas yeah. we're, we're we're a bit of a tougher audience over our part of the world, aren't we? We have, we have, we have. I think it's that British stoicism that kind of sits in and culturally underlays the the uh, Australian character. Yeah, or 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 just a, a lack of tolerance for bullshit in our part of the world. Really, <laughs> you know, you've really got to impress Australians. And they're going, yeah, bloody nice job you did there, mate. Yeah. You know, so yeah. it's your journey to get to this point. Okay, so we we talked about making observations, and you get to this TED experience, and then you can get the data and from that form the model. At some point, you're working for people, now you're working for yourself. Tell me about that journey. How do you get there? It was a little bit by accident. Um, I mentioned that I was living in London. I managed to have a slight buffer of a nest egg, but I only had a nub of an idea. Mm -hmm. And so one of the things I did is I did that transition over three or four years where I slowly built, you know, 100% work, corporate work, 0% my own business and I basically just moved that needle bit by bit until it went over 50% and then I had to decide whether I'd take a leap of faith at that point. How did you make that decision? I had to work out whether I could live with zero income for at least two years. So that was and how did you make that decision? That would terrify most people. It was but I really didn't like my job. Oh, actually, no, I loved my job. I hated my boss. I think there's a lot of data that says that 70% of people quit their job because they don't like their boss, but I won't go into that now. Okay. So it was an intention, but it wasn't a rule, shall we say. It's like, if, if I could survive that long, then I'd probably be all right. But for anyone who's an entrepreneur, I actually recommend two years is not enough. I managed to burn through that in a year. So that, that's maybe a hindsight advice. But that was kind of the general criteria where I thought, I don't like what I'm doing. I have enough to do this other thing 
And I was already doing a whole lot of side projects. So I was already running my own meetup groups to help people achieve certain things. I was already honing my communication and leadership skills from that point of view. And I thought, well, this is now consuming a significant amount of my time. What have I committed full-time to that? What could that possibly create? And to be honest, for the first two years, it didn't create anything. I thought I was doing great work, but the reality was financially, I wasn't. Uh, and that's why I said I thought I had two years with a day um, living than I did. Yeah, I reckon, I reckon it took me five or six years, actually. Yeah, I think it was, yeah. I reckon, I reckon when, when, when I left working in a school and set up Circle, our research institute, which yeah. um, was itself the inheritor of a, another company that had been around for 25 years, Creative School Management. Right. Um, and then eventually, you know, last year, um, we, we converted it into the entity that is a school for tomorrow. Um, I reckon we tried 20 to 25 different things in the first five years, all of which worked better or worse, but they all worked but we had to find out what people were actually going to pay us for. And, of course, you know, when every month there was a deficit that was the managing director, now the managing partner who, who goes, oh, well, I won't get paid this month instead of that person. So it's, sort of, it's, it's an interesting thing, isn't it? Yeah, for sure. How did you prepare yourself? How did you accustom yourself to that level of responsibility? Oh, oh let's see. It was partly necessity. It was a survival skill. I think that was the biggest driver. It's like, if I didn't do this, I'd have to go back to work. And I just really, really, really didn't want to do that. I think that was a, a very strong motivator for me. I also knew at that point what lit me up and what didn't. And I decided I wouldn't commit to anything that didn't light me up. And so I had to, and I was doing plenty of things at that time that were, were doing good, doing well. They were fine but they weren't necessarily lighting me up. So I was, I was existing rather than thriving, and at best I might have been surviving. Um, yeah, it's very, it's very human though, isn't it? It's very human. I think, I think I got to the point where, for me, I don't think it was about my boss. I think it was more that I wanted to be at a point where I didn't want to work with people if I didn't have to. Do you know what I mean? It's, it's, it was that idea that I only wanted to work with people who were like-minded and aligned to the sort of things that we were doing, and I wanted to have the freedom to choose a project and to say, okay, uh, we'll, we'll opt out of that one because that's just not me, that's just not us, that's not what we, who we are and what we want to be and what we want to become. We began this part of the conversation looking at the notion of, of how you help people reach their potential. I think we've actually learned probably more in this part of the conversation about how you worked out how to reach your own potential yeah. around this. Tell me about that notion of helping people to reach their potential because you said that that's a, a significant part of what you yeah. did. Yeah. So I, at that point, I, was, I had a buffer of cash that I was literally giving to people, thinking I would help them, and then realised that all it was doing was just burning revenue, burning cash. These people said, all I need is the cash. If I had the cash, everything would be different. And then... The reality is they weren't. They just spent the cash and still were in the same spot. So I had to work. It was it was it was at that point that I really started to study in a much more uh, significant way mental models, mental health, and uh, just what's going on in psychology. Mm. And so I, I took some of that, that funding, and, and for about two years, I more or less did full time study on myself, worked out what my nature is 
if you understand where you are, I think you can better understand where other people are. And, and I really love the Deepak Chopra analogy he gave at the time. Whereas, you know, if you're in the ocean and you're bobbing, there's 30 foot waves bouncing over you and you're bobbing up and down and someone drops something the equivalent of the Empire State Building in the ocean, would you necessarily notice? And the answer is probably not because you're trying to exist. But if that ocean was as still as glass and someone dropped an object as large as the Empire State Building in the ocean, would you notice? The, the answer would be absolutely. And so what I was able to do at that point, based on my own mental state and, and psychology and learning models, was work out what my still point was and therefore what other people were doing that was causing that turbulence. And that became the next level for me. I knew I wanted to help people. I knew environment was important. Helping people was important. But I suddenly knew what I could do to help people. It's interesting. It comes back to, to you know, in a way that it almost comes back to what we were talking about in the last conversation that we had about acceptance and belonging you know if people are just surviving they're probably more likely less likely sorry to um to let us in if they're just trying to do their thing and cope in difficult circumstances they'll push you away but if you can help them to move from survival to thriving and you can demonstrate your benefit to them along that way well then then they might be more likely to let you in yeah you know? and that's why intention is so important mm. i don't believe you can help them it Indeed. doesn't matter how good the advice is. So you've done this study on yourself. Where do you go from there? So some of the speakers that I'd begun training were getting quite successful. And a lot of people were asking them, who taught you how to speak? And they'd all say, John Yo. And, I, and they'd all come to me and go, teach us how to speak. It's like, And I, I, ref, I flatly refused because that wasn't what I thought I was doing at the time. And I had a sample of one, which was my TEDx community. You know, I knew it worked within that, but I did it work in other industries or sectors. When did you establish your Melbourne TEDx enterprise? Uh, 2009. 2009. Okay. Right. Carry on, please. Yes. So I also got asked, and this is about three or four years in, I also got asked by another organisation called National Speakers Australia at the time, now called Professional Speakers Australia, to do a talk on how a short talk impacting the speaking industry. And... All I had at the time was a pocket full of papers and notes going, this is what I think would happen. And the analyst in me said, I just can't give random risks of, of an opinionated individual. So it forced me to create a model. And it's not the model I shared, it was another model, but uh, it, which was the precursor. Um, but I shared that model and they said, you need to be teaching this. And I again refused. And I went out and I tested it with different industries and sectors to see whether it, I'd still yield the same result. And so after basically about four and a half, five years worth of testing, I had enough data to go, okay, I'm ready to go with this. And then I launched. And, Excellent. Uh, and that Excellent. became what I do today. The early there it is. Today. Yeah. So it was a little bit by accident. Again, lots of data, a crucible of necessity. Um, caused me to get the clarity I needed to to move forward. There's nothing like a deadline, is there? Yeah. There's nothing. There's nothing. And particularly, particularly when you get, you have to perform in front of a whole lot of people, it, it, you pull stuff together fairly quickly that might have been swimming around amorphously in in, in a sea of your own thoughts, yeah. waiting for that Empire State Building to land. Yeah. Fairly close to you, hey. And I had to reconcile my comfort with risk because my brother and I are almost exact opposite. He learned to ski on double black with borrowed skis that were too long because he thought he'd learn something new from it. Whereas you wouldn't catch me in a million years doing something remotely like that. 
And this is comes as the Carol Dweck growth mindset. I realized I wasn't a growth mindsetter. I was a fixed mindsetter. And so I had to then, and I didn't have words for it back then, but since then I found that book. Um, I had to learn to be comfortable with being uncomfortable. And I guess that's self-acceptance in some ways, but that then became reality where, and, and, and you hear this term all the time, you know, playing to win, not playing to not lose. Yeah, it's, it's, it's a very interesting contrast. And, you know, we've touched on the world of sport a few times, but um, there's always a contrast between the coaches or the managers who will emphasise not losing first mm-hmm. and then the ones who play to win. And the ones who play to win, they'll lose more or they'll win more, but they're the ones that last in our imagination. You know, that's the, you know, the Kipling thing about, you know, lose it all on one toss of the dice and treat triumph and disaster, those two imposters the same, blah, 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 blah. Here we are, both children of post-colonial worlds, and I'm talking about Kipling. Or I could talk about Teddy Roosevelt and the man in the arena too, but that's possibly even worse. John, I'm loving this conversation. Um, uh, it sort of brought us up to the present day. I, I wonder whether now might be a good time for us to pause, and then we can pick this up again next week and talk about the doing of good and right and about how you, you're getting out there now and, and what that looks like. Would, would that work for you? Yeah, totally. Fantastic. Game Changers is a podcast for those who want to change the game of school. Produced by Oliver Cummins for Orbital Productions and powered by a school for tomorrow, Game Changers is available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Play and SoundCloud. Tell your friends and don't forget to subscribe. Let's go.